Welcome, it's Max Blumenthal, and we're here exclusively at Rockfin, which means I have to hit go live at two separate platforms. Um, and I think we're discussing one of the more momentous issues right now for the future of human survival. It's something that's being framed in US media by the New York Times as an anxious Japan responding to an aggressive China. But what we're seeing is the Biden administration encouraging Japan to engage in its most aggressive posture of militarization since World War II. And the Japanese administration of Kishida and the Liberal Democratic Party fully embracing this remilitarization plan and pledging to double Japan, Japan's military budget. So what does this mean for China? What does this mean for a potential future conflict between the US and China? Something that US military brass have been projecting, referring to the Ukraine proxy war as a kind of preparation for the ultimate war with China. Well, to discuss this further, I've invited my friend Joseph Essertier who is a scholar activist based in Japan and the Japanese coordinator for World Beyond War uh, to explain the in internal dynamics in Japan and the regional geopolitical dynamics and project forward what this extremely disturbing development means for the future of peace in the region. Um, so welcome, Joseph. How are you doing? Hi, thank you. Uh, Joseph, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started with the conversation. Okay. Um, I work at a university in Japan, and I've been an activist for about two decades, uh, mostly, almost all uh, working on uh, peace, adv advocating peace on the streets, um, often on the streets, and writing, and uh, yeah, I, I've been in Japan for almost three decades, so I'm, in a way, I'm a little bit Japanese. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but I'm, I, I grew up in California, in Southern California, and uh, that's, I think that's good enough. <laughs> well, I mean. Having been there for three decades, speaking the language, being integrated into the society and being a peace activist in a society that's really in a, in, a, in, a, in a political culture that's trending rightward and that has been pretty solidly right wing even since World War II must give you a unique perspective. Um, tell me what, 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 what's been happening since Shinzo Abe's assassination and what Abe's real legacy is in terms of this remilitarization plan. Okay. The, the remilitarization uh, has been happening really ever since Japan's constitution was passed uh, back in at the end of the 1940s. Uh, but uh, it ex really accelerated under um Shinzo Abe and uh the present prime minister Fumio Kishida is basically following in in Abe's footsteps the 
the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, which, which has been the ruling party uh, all through the post-war period, except for a short, short period when, when other liberal party um, uh, took over. Uh, they, that LDP has long um, been trying to uh, put Japan back where it was. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, they still have dreams of an empire and, uh, you know, being a dominant, the dominant force in East Asia, if not the world. Um, the, the LDP is, is very much tied in with, with the United States. There's evidence that they get funding uh, from uh, the CIA. There's that that's been coming out just recently. So, right, Abe was essentially kind of a CIA asset. Right, and so and and so Kishida is is just following in Abe's footsteps, and um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, the world ha has become a more violent place, and they have good excuses for um, building up Japan's military, and unlike in previous periods. Uh, and during the last year, uh, more and more, that uh, seems like the majority of the population of Japan, a slight majority, are in favor of building up their military, getting ready for to fight. And that you know, this is uh, scary for people in East Asia, given the history of uh, the colonialism of the Empire of Japan. Japan has been um, militarizing uh, islands. In the the Ryukyu Island chain, which is goes yeah. from Kyushu. Kyushu is in the west or southwest. It's the, it's the closest part to uh, to Taiwan that is mainland Japan. Yeah. And um, going from there all the way down to uh, to Taiwan, this whole island chain. There's just been um, at least a, at least ten islands that are being. Uh, intensely militarized in the, like the last five years, uh, bases and uh, uh, weapons and vehicles and um, yeah, lots of yeah. You get the idea. <laughs> and 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 talk a little bit about Japan's military industry um, and how it's sort of ramping up production and uh, new technology. Uh, yes. Um, let's see. We've have. I made a list of. There's just so much has been happening in the last few months. I mean, it's my understanding Mitsubishi's de uh, developing yeah. long-range missiles, which could strike into core Chinese cities. Right. Uh, Mitsubishi. Um, basically, I. I Here's a good summary that I found uh, on the internet. Um, Japan has created its first amphibious military unit since World War II and launched a new class of high-tech frigates. Um, one, the, the one that's being launched, uh, that was launched by Mitsubishi in 2021 is called Noshiro. Yeah. Uh, and it's restructuring its tank force to be lighter and more mobile and building up its missile capabilities. Uh, and Mitsubishi is extending the range of Japan's uh, Type 12 surface-to-ship missile. Uh, and that will give 
Japan the ability to attack enemy bases. And that's, that's the, I think that's probably the number one issue amongst people that I, that I'm talking to. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Japan is preparing, it's like, we're supposed to be because of the con peace constitution, Japan's supposed to be on the defensive, but now we're getting ready to actually destroy enemy bases in foreign countries. That's just, that's, that does not, you can't, you can't even, before you could kind of make an excuse, oh, you know, the self-defense forces, that's to protect Japan, it's, that's defensive. Uh, and and F-16s, maybe we need those because maybe if some, right. you know, we get attacked. But now it's uh, just, it's just out of control. And there, there's, uh, I've got a list here. There's just all kinds of um, weapons that are being produced. And there, Japan is selling weapons over, over in other countries. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, the way this is being portrayed in the U.S. media because it's being portrayed entirely as a defensive alliance. I mean, I'll show you a New York Times article. Um, this is a big New York Times spread. This is actually a cover story on the front page of the New York Times. But it actually, the headline was actually different. It was that uh, an, an anxious Japan uh, seeks help from the U.S. in defending itself against China. But here you just see as China's power grows. I mean, obviously there were, you know, Chinese missile tests that upset Japan, but here you see the New York Times framing it entirely in terms of uh, Japan responding to a Chinese threat, whereas the Chinese response, which we've seen from the Global Times, is that this is bringing back historical demons from World War II. Right, right. Um, it's scary. None of that's mentioned here. Um, yeah, so, I found my list. Yeah, uh, please. We have uh, the Type 16 Maneuver Combat Vehicle, or MCV, which is an armored fighting vehicle, like a kind of like a tank on wheels. Yeah. Uh, those are being driven on, or, or one was driven on a public road recently down in, on an island in Ryukyu. Uh, we have General Atomics MQ-9 Reaper uh, deployed to Kagoshima. That's clearly for um, battles, preparing for battles with China that would provide intelligence and reconnaissance support, uh, assault amphibious vehicles, Ospreys, uh, Japan's buying them. The um, U S military in Japan has them. Those are for caring for moving Marines and, uh, and moving troops and equipment uh, very quickly from, from Island to Island, uh, Patriot missiles, high Mars, uh, radar being built in Yonaguni, uh, 18 F-35s are supposed to be purchased this year uh, and uh, two aircraft carriers. Uh, you know, most countries don't have an aircraft carrier, but um, Japan had one called the Izumo, which is only supposed to be for helicopters. But uh, now it's uh, now they're going to have another one called the Kaga. And that's yeah. been ref refit to accommodate the F-35. Uh, also, uh, Tomahawk missiles, <clears throat> submarines and warships. So it's just... <laughs> it's hard to keep up with it with uh, uh, how quickly the militarization it's like uh kishida just stepped on the gas pedal just you know going straight for world war three <laughs> so it's you know china uh if i was chinese i'd be i'd be worried <laughs> yeah um 
when you say going going straight toward, towards World War III, um, here are comments by a U.S. Marine general who stationed in the East, Marine General James Bierman, has said that the U.S. began preparing Ukraine for an inevitable proxy war back in 2014 with Russia, and that the Ukraine proxy war is actually setting the theater in Japan, in the Philippines, for another war with China over the Taiwan Strait. Um, so here you have him. He told this to the Financial Times, a top Marine general essentially saying that, yes, everything happening in Ukraine is setting the stage for World War III and that Japan will be the base for launching that war along with the Philippines and obviously Taiwan. Um, I believe that Kishida has said that any attack on Taiwan would be responded to by Japan. And that's right. You know, what, what, what sort of strikes me is what, what's, what, what strikes me is that, you know, okay. In the U S we're thousands of miles away, a proxy war is taking place in Ukraine. So American soldiers are not coming back at like in the Iraq war, their legs blown off or in coffins draped in American flags. So there's very little pressure on Biden, except vis-a-vis -vis right. the billions and billions of aid that's being sent to shady Ukrainian warlords and oligarchs and who knows where. But with Japan, I mean, this for Japanese people, this is a matter of life and death. They could be incinerated in, in seconds. And, you know, I have been South Korea, so I was able to talk to people there. And it is a very right-wing militarized society. Uh, but there's still an understanding there that... Uh, there should be some kind of detente and this is an absolute last resort um, except among the, you know, the real hardliners I spoke to, but it, you know, it doesn't, is there any resistance to this program within Japanese civil society? I mean, you are a coordinator of Japan's branch of world beyond war. Is there any concrete resistance to this mad dash to a, a war that would see millions die in the region um, why are Japanese people supporting governments like Kishida who are carrying out Abe's fanatical militaristic wishes? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people, probably the majority of the people think that they're being protected by Kishida and the U.S. military. And so um, and they're just not paying attention. A lot of people are just asleep right now, I think. Yeah, they don't. They don't feel they don't actually don't feel the the tension, uh, I think, as much as probably people in South Korea who they've been right next to uh, that tension between North Korea and South Korea. Um, Seoul is not that far from North Korea. So maybe it's a little different there here. I think. But yeah, there are protests. Uh, Ryukyu is the best example. And uh they have constant protests and very large protests. Um, and there's, there are things are coming out all the time from their um, uh, joint statements from intellectuals and um, anti-war activists. Uh, so um, there, that's how, yeah, let's see, I have some too my information I have is too detailed, but um, yeah, it's, there's tons of stuff happening down in, in UQ. Here, here though, I, I live on Honshu, which is the main island, and um, I live in Nagoya, which is 
between Tokyo and, and Kyoto. So I'm kind of right in the center. And here um, uh, we, we have protests, we have weekly protests against the um, building. There's, there, uh, now there's one major uh, military base that's being built for the US military being paid for by Japanese taxpayers. And we're constantly protesting against that, trying to um, build support to um, block or uh, stop, stop or at least slow down the construction. Um, and uh, there are people here who are trying who talk about the crimes that Japan committed against Chinese and Koreans. Yeah. So um, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But it's but unfortunately, we're small. We're a small group. We're small. We're a very small, tiny minority. The the demonstrations here are uh, they're much bigger in the United States, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the demonstrations against the Ukraine proxy war have been pretty small so far. There was one in New York that was, from what I could tell, pretty underwhelming. But the there's there's a lot of anger online it just hasn't played out in the streets i would just think this would be more existential for japan and japanese people um i wonder what kind of pressures are are working on younger people in japan I mean, you mentioned that people are sort of tuned out i mean is it that they're so absorbed in screens and online culture that they've been effectively depoliticized in south korea one of the major issues was just simply the military culture where right. young men have to enlist. It was very similar to Israel. And then the military becomes the main institution for cultivating pro-war sentiment. And you can actually feel that in the society. Um, I don't understand Japan quite as well, um, but I would assume it's sort of the siege mentality that's inculcated at, you know, in term, through anti-China and anti-communist rhetoric. And, 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 the, and obviously, the blitzkrieg they must get of, of U.S. media. Yeah, we're we are very much tied in with with U.S. media. So uh, sometimes we, when it, when it's just the United States fighting somewhere, then we'll sometimes we'll get a, a slightly more objective perspective. Like the war in Afghanistan, I remember right. there was there was a um, interview. A Japanese man was interviewing an, a, an Afghani whose house had been destroyed and his whole family had been had been killed. Um, and he was like, you know, who who is who is Osama bin Laden? I, I don't. And um, so there's um, that kind of um, sometimes we, we you, you that happens. But right now, um the media is just so tight. There, there, there's so little criticism. If I want to find out what Japanese, um, like I would say, dissenting voices within the establishment, what are they saying? It's often easier for me to to watch um, Chinese or uh, read uh, Chinese uh, state media than it is right. to to watch uh, or read articles in Japanese or, or English articles from Japanese media. So um, people just don't actually, I think young people, I talk to young people because I work at, work at a university. Um, they just, 
have so little uh, history, understanding of history, and they are not reading the newspaper. Yeah, that's it. Very, very different from previous generations. Um, some, in some ways, they're they're better informed about what's current events. The ones who are in, who are curious, but on the whole, they've been encouraged so encouraged to be to avoid politics. Um, most of them are just asleep. They don't they don't know what's going on. They're they're just you know focusing on their studies and getting getting a job and getting ahead in society. So um, yeah, the young there's a huge gap between there's a there's a generation gap, and almost all the people who are involved in anti-war activism in Japan are elderly. I'm, I'm one of the younger people actually. And really? there are very few, yeah, very few young people. So it's, it's, it's a depressing situation here. Yeah. I see that acro across the West actually, um, maybe to a lesser extent in Europe, but our rallies here in the U S uh, typically have a disproportionate representation of older people. And a lot of times when I get up to speak at the rallies, I say never trust anyone under 40 um, or under 30. <laughs> what are they doing? I mean, when you see activism of young people, it's like you'll see some glassy-eyed um, young people kind of gluing themselves to the floor at art museums uh, or like throwing paint on some Van Gogh painting to protest the climate emergency but uh, they're not really protesting what seems like a nuclear war emergency, which is staring yeah. us right in the face. Right. Uh, I, I, and I, but um, to be fair, they, they listen. So yeah. I, don't talk, I don't have so many opportunities on campus to talk, but um, when I'm on the streets, um, we, we stand on the corner once a week on Saturday night and um, for one hour. And um, the majority of the people walking by are young people. And they listen. They're they're interested. And I have we have people stopping all the time, and they're they're like, "Wow, what what is this?" And they 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 come and they try to read read our banners, and uh, they take photos. Uh, they send them to their friends, and so they're 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 interested, and in, and in, you know, uh, they're young. So, uh, yeah. But but they just uh, like we're almost on another planet. We don't they. And they don't, I think they just don't know where to start. And so it, it's really on the, it's, that's our responsibility. We, ha, we have to find a way to connect with them. And um, it's not, not, not necessarily on the streets. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to connect through the internet. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do get a, a decent amount of correspondence from Japan and I've had gray zone articles republished in Japanese, but it's, yeah. You know, something I've always wanted to do is try to reach that audience with a stable platform. I don't quite know how to do it, but I think it would make a major impact because it doesn't seem like there is much anti-war programming or critical history. It makes me wonder what takes place in public elementary curriculum in Japan. Um, you know, you would think in a country like Japan, there would be something similar to what took place in Germany where there was a re-examination of the past, something that there was a process in Germany throughout the 1970s where Germany went through a kind of national crisis right. with the Red Army faction and bombings. And there was talk of um, a new emergency law, kind of Patriot Act. But the German leadership, the West German leadership said, no, we're not going to fall for that. And 
um, even figures mm-hmm. associated with the German war machine, or at least uh, the, the, the German military brass that weren't ideologically Nazi, uh, their family members actually publicly opposed it. And uh, Ulrika Meinhof, who was killed in a German prison, who was the, you know, Meinhof of the Bader Meinhof gang carrying out lots of terrorist bombings around Germany, was actually granted a state funeral in Strasbourg as a way of saying, no, we're not going to go back to the past. Um, I know that Japan. Yeah. No, Japan that- has not gone through anything like that. Now, that's the big problem. It, the, and so history, there's this history that's just sitting there waiting to be read. It's, I mean, it's in yeah. the encyclopedias. You can read about the comfort women issue. You can read about uh, forced labor of Koreans. Yeah. Uh, you can read about these mines where uh, Chinese were, they were just used like disposable tissue uh, as workers and then just thrown into these pits uh, after they had served the purposes of, you know, helping the empire of Japan. Um, there, there's all these, there's this dark, dark history of atrocities that were committed by the empire of Japan. And it's just sitting there, but um, people aren't reading it because they're not forced to. And that was also partly the fault of the United States in the post-war period. The U.S. Um, um, censored uh, information about uh, World War II and actually even Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and so people just didn't know. They didn't know until like, uh, you know, after Japan regained its sovereignty uh, in the early, early 1950s, um, until that point, um, it was, uh, there was just sort a, of an information blackout. I mean, they would blackout. not have been exposed to any, right. You would think that having experienced Hiroshima and Nagasaki, yeah. there would be this deep resentment yeah. Yeah. for there isn't. just everything that emanates from the Imperial Japanese culture and, ideology and for the the relationship with the united states because it was the united states that did this to them right on the false basis that an amphibious invasion would have killed millions of or left million a million american service members wounded and that there was no path to negotiation with this psychotic imperial government right um but but that's not there oh it's not there's not there's no there's no there's no anger because they just don't know what happened they just don't, yeah. and, and the information is all there. You can you can you can look it up on the internet. It's in Japanese. They're they're Japanese and Japanese intellectuals are are you know good. They're doing their job. They're they're writing the history. Yeah. Uh, there's and there's information coming out all the time. There's massive amounts of translations of from English books. You know, great books that are published in English. They're very good about translating stuff right away, and so it's all the information is there, but. Uh, I guess that there was just this long period where you have the information blackout and then just constant propaganda from the United States television. Like a friend of mine said, the national flag of Japan should be uh, Mickey Mouse because it's, you know, <laughs> it's just like this Disney world. That, and uh, the post-war economy was so good for, you know, right. uh, the 60s and 70s. Japan, Japan experienced the greatest improvement in standard of living of any country in history. So just, you know, they went, the majority of the population were, or, you know, farmers and uh, suddenly 
they're living in they're living almost the kind of standard living that Americans are living, the richest country in the world. So um, uh, that I think that put a certain amount of conservatism in into the society when people got wealthy that they, they got their lives got so much better. And so why, why ask questions, you know, <laughs> forget about history. Well, that's just, that's the past. That's a dark past. And that was just an anomaly. And now we're, now we're, it's a democratic country. We're free right. and liberal. And, and Japan did have a lot of freedom. The, the, uh, the constitution uh, was, you know, gave Japanese human rights and gave uh, workers the right to strike. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, land reform was incredible. They took, took, take the land from the rich and give it to the poor. Literally, <laughs> they just yeah. transferred, transferred wealth. To, uh, uh, so all these farmers who had nothing, had nothing before, suddenly they've got a little farm. They've got, a, they've got a decent life. They, right. And then they've got a color, color television, a nice car, the street. They've got nice paved roads, uh, and excellent, excellent doctors, uh, excellent medicine. You know, just uh, life just became so good. And so, um, and you're being encouraged constantly to ignore the past. That's just, you know, forget about that. So that's, that's kind of my image of what, how, uh, this, this huge, um, this incredible, uh, basically in intellectual poverty, uh, when it comes to history came about. Well, there's a, a portion of the Japanese population. And I, I guess you're pointing to, especially the millennial and generation Z, a sector or demographic that is not interested in this history. Uh, but there's also a portion that has succumbed to a kind of uh, nostalgia for Imperial Japan and this stabbed in the back mentality that we saw present in Weimar Germany in post-World War One Germany. And you see it play out um, particularly around the Yasukuni Shrine each year. And I want you to talk about that. This is uh, the scene outside the Yasukuni Shrine this year, this August in the sweltering heat. You can see just lines and lines of Japanese people lining up to pay homage to those who are buried there. Yeah. I'm just endless lines. There are many wars going on right now. Yeah. I came to pray and hope that fewer people will die in wars. But he obviously doesn't know what's there. <laughs> yeah, that's not what this is about. Okay, and there's the Imperial Japanese. Flag. People from other countries may say certain things, but this issue belongs to the Japanese people. So only the Japanese people can decide for themselves. For that reason, we should visit the shrine without ambiguity. It's a day for worship, to look back upon the past, reflect on it, and pray. Yeah, there are people who are trying normal people, too. It's not just war criminals. Right. Well, here's a yeah. very peaceful-looking display. <laughs> not disturbing at all. <laughs> Like right back in the 1930s. <laughs> Many Japanese lawmakers participate in honoring the war criminals buried at the Yasukuni Shrine, uh, top level officials. And 
you see some of them there. But just to, I guess give us some some history of this shrine and what it means in contemporary Japan and who are who are the people being honored there by average Japanese citizens and uh, top officials alike. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a religious um, institution, uh, Shintoism. You might have heard of. Uh, yeah. um, the word Shinto didn't appear until the late 19th century, and it was uh, an invention. But um, all of the the shrines there were there were shrines that were just like local um, that local religious practices. They were all put together into one uh, under under the emperor. And um, so they, and, um, but Yaskuni Jinja um, has a long history. The, uh, it goes back to before the war um, of, and they enshrine um, soldiers uh, to, you know, uh, so people can, pay respects and and they can pray pray to them you know there's a you know there's ancestor worship in japan right right well people, people pray to their ancestors so um so that's and that's all that's fine but and it's fine to remember to remember how the people who fought for your country um japan was it's easy to forget that japan was threatened by the west uh japan could have been colonized like almost every other non-european country um but um so um but by 1901 or so japan was already had a had an empire and was starting to on the same path as the western powers uh colonizing and just getting greedier and greedier the empire of japan but and so um but after world war ii all these war criminals were enshrined at Yasukuni. So it's a mix of ordinary soldiers and like top level war criminals who, who bore yeah. responsibility for the, the tragedy, the death and destruction of uh, Japan's, um, the, the China war and uh, the Pacific war. Um, so um, it's understandable that, that people would want to go there and pay respects. They might even have family members, um, their own ancestors there. But um, it was really, it seems like a really, whoever designed that, whoever set that up, um, which is definitely the government, the government of Japan, um, set it up in a very devious way so that um, people, there's no way to separate them. You have- right. So that when you go, if you go to pay respect to family members, you're also simultaneously paying respect to war criminals, people who may have participated in the rape of Nanking. I mean, there are these stories of uh, Japanese officers who participated in decapitation contests on their way to Nanking, how many they could decapitate. Right. uh, Just hideous, hideous human rights crimes. Yeah. Yeah, And they're there. Class A war criminals among average people. Right. That's, yeah, that's the problem. And so, and so the, it really needs to be separated. Somebody, somebody needs to just say, okay, everybody who loves war criminals, okay, here's your place to worship. 
war criminals, <laughs> but ordinary people, this is, this is your, your place. And so, um, but, and every time a high ranking official like uh, Koizumi, he was yeah. prime minister Koizumi, um, he's, he's, he established a pattern of visiting um, Yasukuni shrine. And every time someone like someone, a high profile person does that, it just brings back the wounds, remember memories right. of World War II, and and you know inflames inflames tensions. And, um, the lady saying, like, well, either either way, if you if you want to forget history, then don't inflame the tensions and don't don't remind people in East in East Asia and uh, Southeast Asia, the former colonies of Japan, don't remind them of the 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 horrible things that you did to them. Um, but no, ideally we would remember history. Uh, and if you're going to remember history, then you have to, you have to deal with it. You like, yeah. like Germany. And that's a very good comparison. Germ comparing Germany to Japan, Japan really should, has to go through the same process and, and has to make apologies. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to speak as an American because <laughs> when did we apologize? Have we ever, is there is there even any discussion of us apologizing to Vietnam as as a as a you know as our government does it, is there is there pressure what kind of what kind of memorials do we have in the United States to remember the crimes that we committed against the Viet Vietnamese so it's hard for me to speak uh, but um, but yeah Americans and Japanese need to atone for their for their crimes and unfortunately we inherit we inherit that. I would love to just say I would love to just live a normal, life, peaceful life in Japan. But as an American living in Japan, I carry the the weight of that, and I, I also benefit from the the, the um, you benefit as as a as a member of the empire. We don't call ourselves an empire, but as a, as an American, just walking around in the world, um, you reap profits. You profit yeah. from that violence, whether you like it or not. And so the way I look at it, we've got we've got blood on our hands, and so and the only way only way you can get it, get it off your hands is to is to speak up and protest and study study history. Uh, you know, try to try to make try to make up for for what our countries did in the past, like with slavery or or the the uh, Japanese Americans, the, in, the internment camps in California. Right, right. Well, I mean, you bring up a really interesting point that could be made on a on a broader international level especially with respect to the west and yeah i i grew up i'm generation x so growing up in the u.s i did witness a period in which the baby boomer generation at least part of it went through a re-examination of the american soul through the vietnam war era and the civil rights era and you know in the 1980s you saw this string of films about Vietnam that painted the U S as not just, uh, you know, a country that had made a terrible mistake, but actually as a predator, a predatory empire mm -hmm. platoon, full metal jacket, these films by the greatest filmmakers, Kubrick and Oliver Stone were part of um, that, that process. Of course mm -hmm. it led to nowhere because of the end of the, the once the cold war ended um, it was, not only you know the u.s imperial structure that embraced this 
uh, role as a global hegemon, but, but also a large part of that liberal baby boomer generation became a part of it um, through the Clinton years and shed their own inhibitions about imperialism um, mm -hmm. as they just you know, embraced the Democratic Party. And you can see that today and what the Democratic Party has become. It is, it is the pro-war party. There's a wing of the Republican Party that has inhibitions about what's taking place in Ukraine for their own reasons. But that's, it's not allowed in the Democratic Party. You're not allowed to be against aid. And then you have the whole issue of you know, history here in the U.S. Okay, the Republicans, there's a, the Republicans on the state level are blocking what they call critical race theory. And some of that stuff, you know, it is goofy to me, a lot of it, uh, and, you know, trying to just um, a, a lot of the racial training that takes place. But there's also, you know, an element where the Republicans are simply saying anything relating to examining the brutality of American slavery, what the Confederacy did, the extermination of American Indians, or as you mentioned, the concentration camps that the FDR administration placed Japanese Americans in, that that's also critical race theory. So they're essentially illegalizing yeah. that they're promoting in florida under governor ron DeSantis anti-communist education as part of the curriculum in florida public schools so this is all happening here in a in, in, on a parallel track to what's taking place in japan with this nostalgia for imperial japan and then you have and this is particularly being embraced by the liberal intelligentsia in the u.s support for literal nazis in ukraine yeah. <laughs> um, and complete ignorance about what they did. And if you actually look back, it's always been there. The U.S., there's always been an element of the U.S. ruling elite that sought an alliance with Nazi Germany and reluctantly aligned with the Soviet Union to defeat Nazism and fascism across Europe. And here's a really a hilarious exchange that uh, took place on Twitter. Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia under Obama, we call him at the gray zone McPhail or McFool because he's, he's really one of the dumbest people on Twitter, which therefore has granted him a position at Stanford. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm not an expert on World War II. We're, okay, you're not an expert on World War II. You should at least know like basic things if you are claiming to be an expert voice on Russia-Ukraine affairs because that's what this is all about. Were people in 1943 still discussing what annexed lands Hitler would get to keep as part of a peace settlement? Okay, now, whoops. Uh, thank you to um, Morales Alza Farks or whatever your account is. I mean, it's one of these. I, uh -huh. I don't even know what that is. But, you know, this account pointed out, yes, Alan Dulles was sent by the State Department in 1943 to negotiate a U.S.-only withdrawal from the war, and he enthusiastically supported the preservation of Hitler's greater Germany as part of an anti-Soviet plan for order and rehabilitation in Europe. Um, and here you have Alan Dulles was speaking as Bull, like his code name was Bull, and he was going to meet uh, a representative of Hitler. And it, this is what Dulles said. He said, in the future, a situation will never be permitted to arise where nations like Germany would be compelled to resort to desperate experiments and heroism as a result of injustice and want, referring to the Versailles Treaty. The German state must continue to exist as a, a, a factor of order and rehabilitation. The partition of Germany or the separation of Austria is out of the question and then goes on to call for the establishment of a cordon sanitaire against Bolshevism and pan-Slavism through a strong 
Hungary and Poland, exactly what you're seeing right now, by the way, with NATO and Alan Dulles, he loved the Nazis so much. This is in uh, uh, David Talbot's book, uh, the, the Devil's Chessboard. He describes this well. Alan Dulles loved the Nazis so much that when he was going over to Germany to pal around with uh, Nazi officials as uh, the, you know, the head of the OSS, they actually made him uh, a, a dangle. The, the federal law enforcement in the U.S. actually made him a dangle and the FDR, you know, NSC was actually listening in on these conversations because they wanted to know what the Nazis next move was. And so they were like, let's follow this guy because he's basically our Nazi in our government. So McFall didn't even know that. Americans don't even know that. And now yeah. McFall, I mean, we, we, we reported this at the Gray Zone, actually had a meeting, a literal meeting, public meeting with members of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion when they went on a speaking tour to Stanford. So what we're seeing, with whether it's with Japan or Ukraine, is we're seeing the U.S. and NATO kind of returning to its, to its natural place, yeah. which is and, – and also I would say with, with Syria as well, supporting jihadist yeah. elements – uh, okay. The natural place, which is encircling its enemies with Nazis, imperial Japanese fascists, uh -huh. and jihadists. Mm -hmm. Those are our, our, our natural the, and the natural allies of our ruling yeah. elite. Yeah, racism and, and religious intolerance. And, and somehow, I don't know how Japanese and, and South Koreans see themselves fitting into to NATO. And now they're talking about these two countries are talking about joining NATO. And for the first time, Kishida went to a NATO uh, conference, first, first time for a Japanese prime minister to attend one. I don't know what they're thinking, uh, like that they're going to be accepted into this, into this. And now we've got the West against against Russia and China, against yeah. the, the West versus the East. Well, South Korea and Japan are part of the East. So um, that's it's only going to go. You're only going to go so far. You're only going to. I don't understand where, why Japanese are so, I mean, but it, it's, it's propaganda, I guess. There's just been so much, you know, three quarters of a century of just heavy, heavy um, yeah. US, US propaganda. I mean, in even Disney films. Yeah, people don't realize this is part of the Marshall Plan, which is so celebrated in our culture, was to kind of hack the brains of German and Japanese people and make them believe that the u.s is their only ticket to prosperity and peace and right it's the, the carrot the carrot of of, of uh, they had to, had to sort of set up a nice gentle capitalism that would attract people it's um so because communism was popular that's one of the things that people tend to forget is like in east asia you have the soviet union china uh north korea vietnam uh, and even in japan Communism was popular. The idea of sharing the wealth. Let's share the wealth. Well, um, so people um, forget that. But yeah, I, I'm just it, it a lot. It comes down to wealth. Look at the look at this war that we're we're fighting uh, with yeah. Ukraine. We're about to we're about to. Some people say we're already in World War Three. That. Um, Um, it's very much about wealth and we've got who, who's on the side of the United States. It's, it's the rich countries, the right. rich European countries and Japan and South Korea. And then you have, you have these other countries that are, that are kind of 
coming up, um, China and Russia that are starting to, uh, and you know the BRICS, they're starting to come up and, and they're starting to to rival and starting to set up a new a new economic system, and so um, it's just like uh, NATO, the NATO countries are our governments are trying to keep them down. Is that you've got you've got it's it's a very much about about wealth and yeah we're not talking yeah. about that yeah it's it's very much about coveting resources a, a minority of the world's population attempting to covet a majority of resources it's also about um, wealth in terms of built military buildup kind of I hate to use the phrase military Keynesianism but just pumping money into military industries in the U.S. is regarded as a major form of job creation. And I suspect the same thing's happening in Japan where you have uh, a sector of the upper middle class and upper class heavily invested in these companies like Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And while the majority of the population is, is suffering from austerity, we have constant, and and the last three years have just made that stronger. Uh, the 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 COVID policies, um, it's just it's been okay. You just have to keep your mask on. You got to just keep keep working even in this in these impossible situations. And uh, it's a wonder that Japanese don't don't explode. They don't get they don't get angry. Amazingly, this there's this, they have this amazing ability to to suffer for the for the greater good, which is you know, that's a virtuous. That's a nice virtue to have, but um, if you don't reach the good, yeah. <laughs> and you don't experience it at any point, then you would ex- assume an explosion would be inevitable. But here in the United States, you could say the the same thing. This same trend is happening here, and people. Yeah. I mean, the the, the the to the extent we have a civil society, it's demobilized right now. Yeah, and um, in Europe, there seems to be awareness of this this false this fake austerity where yeah. some people are getting are getting filthy rich and the rest of us are are are, are starving you know that there, there seems to be a, some awareness of that but in the u.s and japan uh people just keep plugging along in their in their own way especially in well, japan to the extent it's happening in the u.s or western europe it's that people are shifting to the populist right at least uh you know in the, yeah. in the u.s white people in the middle of the country or who live in the far suburbs are expressing their disgust with, I mean, they even use terms like the deep state. Um, they're expressing their disgust with the ruling elite by moving to the MAGA right or in Germany it would be the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland. Um, and these are parties and political factions that are anti-NATO. Um, so it's interesting to see that shift Whereas, yeah, the left is just totally folded into the Democratic Party here. And the, the Green Party in Germany is one of the most militaristic parties on the planet. But we have a, a question here from uh, Rat Fink and Marmalade, who's a commenter here at Rockfin. Uh, will U.S. provocations goad China into military action? Doubtful. China plays the long game well. While the machinations in Japan and Indonesia and Philippines complicate the strategic cap calculations. The real issue is U.S.-China conflict over Taiwan. Uh, what are your thoughts, Joseph Essertier? Yeah, that's that's it. It's the, the real conflict is over Taiwan. And so uh, and these marine like these this Marines littoral 
regiment, yeah. this new this new uh, thing that they're doing with the Marines, uh, being able to hop from island to island, that must be scary from the perspective of Chinese. Because yeah. if you're going to if you're hopping from island to island and you can move incredible amounts of equipment, all, you can just you know very quickly move straight into into Taiwan. If there's if there's any anything any kind of contingency as they they're constantly warning us about in japan we're getting they're preparing us for it taiwan contingency taiwan contingency uh any any kind of any kind of conflict is if it happens then america and the self-defense force of japan are going to be right there well and um so yeah taiwan is really but and, and what is taiwan they never tell us the mass media doesn't tell us any of the history. Yeah. Well, 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 what is Taiwan? And what's what's the what's the elevator pitch on Taiwan? I mean, what what really is it? Yeah. Um, well, there there was a civil war, and the the there was a, the the Communist Party of China versus the Nationalist Party had a war, and yeah. they escaped, the Nationalists were being supported by the United States from the 1920s. Chiang Kai Shek goes his his history or Jiang Jiexie as it's pronounced now he, he goes way back to, way back with the united states right. and then in the post-war post-war period uh so he's anyway he escapes to with with his his band of of losers basically to they lost the war and they 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 would have completely lost it they would have also lost taiwan if it weren't for the united states so um and they got money and weapons and uh, all kinds of support from the United States, and so the, the the war never finished. So it's a little different from Ukraine. We have an unfinished war here, and why are we? Why does the United States and Japan want to get involved in that? Yeah, I mean that that should be, you know, normal. That should be. Uh, I don't know if that's an international law. Probably there probably is some kind of some kind of law against getting involved in other people's wars. But yeah, so it's all the there. It's definitely about Taiwan control over Taiwan. And what is Taiwan? Look at the history of Taiwan. It was that was Japan's first overseas uh, colony, and uh, Japan took control of that around the beginning of the 20th century, and that was the start of a very very dark period for China. So yeah, it's not. It's no surprise at all that they're going to be. Of course, they're going to be. You know, the slightest, the slightest, you know, uh, thing. The United States or or, or Japan trying to um, really claim Taiwan is going to is going to spark a war. Yeah, it's going to respark or, or restart a regional war. You know, that was never finished. Uh, a regional yeah. war and as 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 you mentioned joseph russia and china are in a strategic alliance and russia is not far from japan the eastern border of russia so this would be the trigger for a world war yeah yeah uh, so and the, uh, the i mean ukraine is so far away and we we, we don't really had not been hearing much about it until uh last year in february but um 
now, yeah, it's, wait, 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 this is Ukraine, this is NATO versus Russia. Now that could easily, that could easily spread. I, I mean, I was already worried about World War III um, almost a year ago, but now, now it's uh, this guy, Emmanuel uh, Todd, the French, he's a French intellectual. He's saying that we're already in World War III. Yeah. And it's, it's very convincing. Yeah. It, um, there's already many people have pointed out how they're, um, the United States and China are um, at each other's throats in various domains, like cyber, through, like, uh, through the internet, um, through control of space and, uh, um, and like here you there's there's ships that are us us uh ships that are in the navy um and you've got um aircraft carriers getting close to to chinese ships and you have planes yeah. that are flying close to each other and not just it's not just it's a very complex situation it is true like kishida is right about that it is very complicated You've got South Korea and Japan and the United States, all with their their separate their, their their militaries, and all it takes is one little thing, uh, one little uh, conflict. Some Americans get shot, get shot, you know, or they get the, a U.S. plane gets accidentally shot down, and there you go. And then uh, everybody just everybody takes sides, and and we wind up getting into nuclear war, if not nuclear uh, winter. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly the U.S. is at war with Russia. I mean, there's there's no question just because it's using Ukraine as its proxy in the words of Iran Contra felon and Fox News commentator Ali North are bullets in their blood. It doesn't mean the U.S. isn't providing sophisticated AI weapons to Ukraine to target uh, key Russian assets, which from Russia's point of view is seen as the U.S. waging war on it. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there, there's no question that that's taking place. So no. um, th this this also ties in to another issue. Japan has shed its veneer of neutrality on the world stage in supporting the U.S. over Ukraine and is citing Ukraine as a precedent for right. its remilitarization. Right. Biden or um, Kishida openly said that i have the quote here well we don't we don't need the quote but what are your what are your thoughts on on, on this development on the, on the internet japan's role on the international stage now has kind of come to the fore japan has always in the post-war period just followed in the footstep of our just sort of obeyed the imperial master in Washington. So I think it's just going to be that may or probably will just continue. Japan's going to, it's like some, some people in Japan often say, uh, uh, Japan should just be declared as the 51st state <laughs> <laughs> because the, Japan doesn't really have its own independent foreign policy. Right. Um, but or the 54th after Israel, Ukraine, and South Korea. <clears throat> yeah. So it's, I, I, I don't see Japan um, staking a, a claim or um, 
establishing something new, some kind of new uh, policy. Although we could see the comeback of the co-prosperity sphere, the way the, the some of the language that they're using now, modernization. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're talking about they're talking about co-prosperity. They're using that term. That the uh, people should remember that uh, the greater uh, East Asian co-prosperity sphere that was Japan's project. That was the excuse for uh, establishing colonies. So um, that kind of language could, yeah, Japan. If if something new was going to happen, it could very well be uh, Japan going back to the 1930s and actually. Yeah, saying using China and Russia as the excuse, um, we've got to you know we've got to protect our security and and the security of everybody in East Asia, and that in order to have that security, we have to hold hold China down, hold Russia down. Right. Uh, we got to keep them down in their place. They're just you know crazy people, and uh, and then so that might that could give the excuse for Japan to start reclaiming some of its former colonial territories right in the, in the long term there's no discussion of that right now but you could i could see something like something like that happening going going back to the 1930s that's that certainly seems like the trajectory and and you know going so going back to that period just the last issue i wanted to cover is something that fascinated me a lot which is the legacy of shinzo abe we've been talking about former japanese leader Shinzo Abe of the Liberal Democratic Party is sort of the, the architect for this remilitarization program. His uh, grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, was, Nobusuke Kishi was a class A war criminal. Um, and his history played, was a factor, uh, I would say, based on what I know, definitely not an expert here, in the assassination of Abe. So here's something I I tweeted uh, at the time that Shinzo Abe inherited the ties his war criminal grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, established with the anti-communist unification church of Sun Young Moon. The Moonies, known here in Washington, D.C. as the owners of the Washington Times, the mother of Abe's assassin had been defrauded by the Moonies, and the assassin blamed his target for shielding the cult. Um, And Mm -hmm. this is... uh, you know, that yeah. this is a section from a, a book on the um, Unification Church and uh-huh. on uh, Kishi uh-huh. about how the Unification Church was actually involved in kidnappings and the mind control of Japanese people. And it also was an, played an important role in the LDP and its Japanese headquarters was built on land owned by Kishi. But there's a CIA tie in here, as you mentioned. Right. That's, um, the, so, that's the key thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell yeah, us more the, about that. Um, it's this. The, it's still kind of murky, but there's evidence coming out uh, bit by bit that um, the the Moonies were um, being used by the CIA to um, support the LDP. And there's also other other evidence of direct. Uh, where uh, war criminals, including Kishinobusuke, were told by the U.S. government that they were um, they're going to be given uh, U.S. funds 
from U.S. taxpayers, and they thought it. Or no, no, not you. Sorry, it was corporations. They thought they were getting money from U.S. corporations, when in fact they were getting money from the CIA. So right. We, so they were cutouts for them. Right, and and so, but that was that came out before um, <laughs> this thing with after before uh, Abe was assassinated. And now um, I haven't actually been following it, but uh, you can pe people can read about it at. Um, um, sorry, uh, Japan Focus, the uh, Japan. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, Japan, if they if they look up Japan Focus, they can see that the journal that that um, I'm involved with and they uh there's all kinds of articles there about that but uh basically yeah it's 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 a real shock to japanese because religion is so um there's so much suspicion around religion in japan right and to think that and then korea <laughs> this is this is a korean christian organization it's it's a, some kind of some sect of christianity from as Japanese would see it and then and that they are they that they were supporting the LDP and yeah former people like Kishi Nobusuke former war criminal and which is Shinzo Abe's family uh it was a real shock and uh but I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure I have I have sort of mixed feelings about that because my people have the right to I think people have the right to follow whatever religion they want and but um and the media is is, is focused is focusing on the religious part of it and um and the, the fact that it's a foreign organization this foreign organization is affecting politics well there are lots of foreign organizations that affect politics but what's what they really should be focusing on is as the CIA all this money coming from coming from the Pentagon um, directly into the pockets of the LDP going way back to the, you know, straight from the end of the end of World War II. Um, they were Japanese uh, elite politicians. The, the idea that they were uh, being supported by, uh, by the U S military, uh, you know, it just changes your whole view of, of what the what is the LDP? Who are these people? They've been they've been pushing us into war for the last three quarters of a century, and the only thing that held one of one of the things that held them back was the peace constitution and a, a Japanese respect for law. And unfortunately, now with the state of exception, it's like Kishida just declares, "Oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna remilitarize. We're gonna go full full on into you know total." total we're going to join this arms race with and we're gonna we're gonna get ready for you know combat with china china what are they thinking yeah. <laughs> you want to go i've heard that from many japanese japanese uh, peace activists like what are what is our government thinking that we're uh, where where are we like microchips and, and and then all these there are all these japanese companies that have operations they have factories in china right uh, and it's just a gigantic country. Uh, Japan is less than half the population of the United States. And the United States, uh, China is four times larger than the United States in terms of population. 
and it's just this you know industrial powerhouse why do you want to go to war with china if, yeah. I mean, if you why don't you get rid of that i mean i as an american i think why don't they just expel the bar barbarians which was the the slogan of the meiji period um uh son no joey uh respect the emperor and expel the barbarians well yeah expel the barbarians <laughs> the united states and just make friends with these people in china they're you know <laughs> um they're where where it's happening and china's not has so far hasn't look at their they have military bases do they have do they have freedom of navigation operations along the coast of california no right right <laughs> so china is definitely how would that go down in the u.s not very well yeah so yeah um but but yeah the, i think uh that's the thing that the mass media is really downplaying or trying to ignore is the CIA money that that this this religious organization was was a conduit for um, for military U.S. military funds and pushing the LDP in a certain direction, which is, you know, that's not democratic. That's not that's not um, uh, Woodrow Wilson's. Uh, um, What's the word in Japanese? English? Minzokujiketsu in Japanese. Um, the self-determination. That's not self-determination. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the whole point, well, first of all, the Unification Church was set up through the KCIA, which is the Korean CIA. Right. And it was an obvious vehicle for U.S. influence and anti-communism. Right. And right. so and Korea, when... South Korea was a, was, was, uh, a military dictatorship. Um, backed by the United States. Yeah. So of course. Com com complete lack of democracy and uh, also not uh, not very much economic development until the right. 70s until the 1980s. or 80s. It was yeah. until the, before they surpassed North Korea. North yeah. Korea was richer than South Korea until the 1980s. Right. So, so you have this pro-dictatorship CIA influence vehicle moving into Japan. And the whole point, it was very clear, it's just to prevent any uh, leftward momentum in Japanese politics and to bring us to where we are today, which, right. as you point out, Joseph Vesertier, has us hurtling towards World War III with Japanese, Taiwanese people, and Filipino people on the front yeah. lines. They will be the first ones to die. And right. if anyone thinks that they're going up against uh the china of old the, the white army of chiang kai-shek with a few submachine guns and maybe some <laughs> brave young men they're absolutely deluded this is a country with access to hypersonic technology nuclear technology advanced ai capability and the largest population on the planet which has uh which has as, as high morale as any other country is willing to fight for its national ideals and security as much as any other country. So this is, it's, it just seems to be an example of, of collective insanity. Yeah. And nobody wants it. If you talk to ordinary people they're but they just, they're not aware that it's happening here in Japan, at least. I don't know what people are thinking in the Philippines or in Taiwan. Um, it's really hard to find out what's going on and going on in Taiwan, but you do see, you see, look at the protests when um, what's her name came from, um, uh, Pelosi, when she visited Taiwan, what happened? 
there were protests, all, major protests in Taiwan. They aren't. They aren't. They don't want. They don't want right. to go to war with China. Right. Taiwanese. I'm sure they know. They know better than we do that 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 this will not end well for for Taiwan. They don't want. They don't want that. Um, but but somehow the the elites of of Taiwan are just totally in bed with the United States. Well, let's close with some sage words by Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, just as an example of uh, what kind of leadership and the mentality that uh, Japan's leadership and Taiwan's leadership and now South Korea's uh, administration are following. Um, this is, you know, this is, these are some really sage words. Sources of strength is democracy. I said at a meeting earlier with the parliamentarians, in our earliest days of our founding of our country, Benjamin Franklin, our presidency, said, freedom and democracy. Freedom and democracy, and one thing, security here. If we, <laughs> we can't have either if we don't have both. Hmm? So, <laughs> security, <laughs> security economy and again they're all and governance they're all related and we want Taiwan to always have freedom and security <laughs> and we're not backing away from that <laughs> thank you <laughs> so she's first of all she says Ben Franklin is the president our presidency Ben Franklin He's never president. And then she, she, she literally called Ben Franklin our presidency. And she's there on the most provocative visit ever to just completely inflame relations with China and set the stage for war. And she's talking about how if you sacrifice uh, freedom and security, you have neither. But she completely misquotes Ben Franklin. And the whole concept of what Franklin was saying is completely antithetical to the point of her visit and everything the U.S. is doing in the region. So, so that's what that's what uh, you've signed up for. They're, those are the people leading you to the brink. Um, but Joseph Essertier, thank you so much for uh, your valuable insights and for a really great conversation. And uh, yeah, thank we've you. been listening to Joseph Essertier, activist scholar based in Japan and the Japanese. Coordinate, uh, the coordinator of the Japanese branch of World Beyond War. And this was another episode of the Gray Zone at Rockfin, exclusively at Rockfin, although we'll feature segments of this on our YouTube channel. But you can tune in here every week. We're trying to warm up this platform again. Um, it's given me the opportunity to have a lot of conversations that would have been censored on YouTube, but we're going to just continue to um, to try to keep them going every week and feature them where we can on our other channels. So anyway, Thank thanks you. again, everybody, for joining. Thanks for all your comments. And uh, meet me here next week. Peace. <laughs>